Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I'm actually going to start with um, a positive story, or at least previewing a positive story that will be in the next edition of APDR. Uh, I had the pleasure recently of catching up with Glenn Keyes, who I've known for a number of years. Glenn is the co-founder of Aspen Medical, and the story of Aspen Medical is one of pretty remarkable achievement uh, for two guys, two Canberra-based guys, having gone from uh, just a very small office in Turner now to running a business with global reach that is providing healthcare services in conjunction with disaster relief operations, uh, humanitarian missions, all of that sort of stuff. It's a great story. Glenn has a military background. He was a helicopter pilot. I think, in fact, he was a, a test pilot. And what he brings to the equation is a very focused operational approach to various tasks. And Glenn strikes me as the sort of person who has gone through life seeing every problem as something that can be solved. You just have to figure out how you're going to do it and the time frame. And he's always done it in a totally ethical manner. So that's something to look forward to. At the other end of the register, the Hunter Class Frigate Program. And just a couple of days ago, I came across, you can find it publicly, one of the most remarkable documents issued by Defence that I think I've ever seen. And this was their submission to the Joint Committee on Public Accounts and Audit, which itself had been in response to an ANAO report into the Hunter Class Frigate program, all very Canberra bubble stuff at some point. But the review, when they looked back at Defence's evaluation back in 2018 of the contenders, the findings were just quite damning. It's my job to read these things so that you don't have to, and rather than just recite the entire thing, which would probably take an hour, I'll read just a couple of the sections that are representative of the entire thing. Finding two, Defence did not adequately recognise that the shortlisting of alternatives and the decision to shortlist was part of the procurement process and therefore subject to the legislated requirements and Defence procurement policy. Seems bizarre. Uh, Then a little further on. The Absence of formal documentation means that there is no evidence to demonstrate that the shortlisting activities and decision were commensurate with the scale, scope, and risk of the decision. The next one. Defence did not use all information available out of the tender process to undertake a comparative assessment in a manner consistent with defence procurement policy. In failing to do this, defence did not fulfil the requirements of the Commonwealth procurement rules in relation to achieving value for money. There are various other segments of the review that are similar to that. And as I say, I've never seen anything quite like it because, first of all, it's very open, quite unlike the secretive nature of most defence reviews. And secondly, it really goes to the heart of the selection of BAE systems and the Type 26 for the, I think we're now up to $50 billion Hunter Class Frigate program. Now, 
The cynic in me wonders why defence have made this document public. They, they didn't make a big deal about it. You have to go to the parliamentary website of the committee and you'll find it there as, as a submission, but it's there. It hasn't been hidden. And I wonder whether this might have been prompted in part because the Green Senator, David Shoebridge, has referred the whole matter of the Hunter class selection process to the National Anti-Corruption Commission. So rather than being able to sweep this under the rug, as has happened on numerous previous occasions, I, I wonder if Defence have had a bit of a recalibration. They also say in the review that it's going to lead to a number of internal changes in the department. I'm going to deal with those in a future podcast. We just don't have enough time now. But one of the, one, for me, one of the most alarming things was that critical documentation from the March 15, 2018 Senior Defence Committee meeting, they've gone missing. No trace of them. And my question is, why has the AFP not been called in? I mean, perhaps they have been, but we just don't know. Whereas Defence are very quick to go down that particular path if, for example, there are any leaks to the media. And might be illustrative. I've been threatened with, with this um, once very bluntly, several years ago, I, I, you know, one morning I got a call from a person in the, in the department who I knew moderately well, and they explained, look, I've been asked to call you because we know each other. And in one of your reports, when it came to a story about a tender evaluation, you mentioned a very particular number. And we're concerned about that. And I said, I couldn't really understand why. And the person basically said, well, you know, the unless you can persuade us that it wasn't some sort of leak, this is the sort of thing that we would uh, refer to the authorities for further investigation. I mean, you know, done in the style of, wow, nice face you've got there. Shame if anything would happen to it. Anyway, I was tempted to just hang up. But I thought, no, to keep the peace. Well, actually, the first thing I said was, you do realise that by making this call, you have confirmed that what I wrote was correct. And there was a few seconds of silence, and the person sort of rather embarrassingly said, uh, yes, I suppose that's true. Anyway, to keep the peace, I explained that I'd just done my research well, that this particular project was a rare event in the form that it was a retender. It was public knowledge what the value of the winning contract was. And I just did some maths calculating the Commonwealth's own costs and what the bid must have been, and then assumed for a rebid, it would be about 10% less than that. Anyway, just through this application of logic, it turned out that I was absolutely on the money, so to speak. Sorry for the terrible pun. And I decided to share that with the person in the department so that they could relay it to all of their colleagues to say, Look, just because journalists write about things, there's, there's no need to be paranoid. It doesn't mean that there's a leak. It doesn't mean that we've bugged your offices. People have got brains. They can do research. They can figure out things for themselves. Anyway, sorry, it's a bit of a raw nerve for me, as I've indicated previously. And I really, I really hope that somebody not only gets to the bottom of these missing minutes from the meeting, but does something about it call everyone in. It can't be that hard. Who was present? Who was taking the notes? Speak to, to that person. Well, what did you do with them? 
Yeah, and, you know, it strikes me as a fairly simple thing to solve and then make sure that there are consequences for the person or people who transgressed. I was uh, talking about this recently to one of my South Korean friends. People now know of my fondness, not entirely unqualified for South Korea. And I said rather naively, you know, what happens in your country when you come across places of you know, serious mismanagement where large amounts of, of money have been wasted. And he said very matter-of-factly, oh, we jail them. Yeah, look, I'm not a, a harsh or, or nasty person. I'm not suggesting that, that everyone who who screws up needs to be put behind bars. But to make the system work, there needs to be some sort of system of sanctions and penalties rather than promotions and medals, no matter how bad the disaster is. Okay, now to a very serious topic that I just can't avoid under the circumstances. I've touched on it before, and that's uh, Israel and Gaza. There are people who know a lot more about this than I do, who are a lot better qualified. I just feel under the circumstances that ignoring the topic would not seem right. So this is my observation, and that is often discussions about foreign policy are... um, instead opportunities to score domestic political points. It has, you know, it is connected with the circumstances that are going on, but but there's a fair bit of wedge politics going on, not just in Australia, but you can see it around the world. And I'd say sometimes the media doesn't help either with an automatic attraction to look for differences in view when it comes to national security and then really go to town on those That means as well that many politicians, rather than defending or explaining their positions, prefer to retreat into silence. And I don't think that's right either. With the usual proviso that circumstances on the ground might have changed when you hear this, the taking of hostages by Hamas is appalling. The Hamas attacks of October 7th were terrible events. But does this justify the mass killing of Palestinians, including large numbers of children? Of course, it does not, unless you are some sort of extremist. And unfortunately, there are just too many of those. And this is occurring on both sides. There are fundamentalists who view the other side as less than human. Sitting in the comfort of Canberra, I'm not going to second-guess the IDF, which is an extremely well-trained and extremely well-equipped force. But to counter terrorists, that's why we have special forces hostage rescue teams, snipers, negotiators, all of those sorts of things. Not thousands of airstrikes and not main battle tanks blasting away at close range because Gaza is so small and so crowded that collateral damage, the euphemism that we use for the accidental or careless killing of civilians, including women, children and old people, it is inevitable in those circumstances. Gaza which I've never visited, but read plenty about. Gaza is four times less than the size of the Gold Coast, and there are 2.2 million people squashed in there. And so I say to all of my Jewish friends that I fully understand a desire for revenge after October 7th, but this will not fix the problem. And that is because Hamas is an idea. Even if every single member of the organization is killed, Then in another five years or more or less, a new group of even more radicalized people will be getting their hands on weapons and they will be seeking revenge. 
I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I can observe that there are plenty of violent sociopaths in Australia. There are Jewish sociopaths. There are Palestinian sociopaths. And extreme language and extreme violence just makes their tendencies worse and it encourages and generates more of them. If politicians and community leaders genuinely wanted to help solve what is an almost impossible problem, they would moderate moderate their language, and I think they would try and find words to condemn all violence rather than pour more fuel on the flames. And on the other hand, as I say, I don't think that sitting back and saying nothing is an option either, certainly not for political leaders. Okay, you probably didn't tune in to to listen to that. So I'll just now have a quick further word about decommissioning nuclear submarines because I came across a passage in an American publication, Breaking Defense, spelt with an S that I've mentioned previously. And it summarizes the processes of this. The traditional process for disposing of a nuclear-powered sub begins with defueling the boat and towing it to Puget Sound Naval Base in Brereton, Washington, where workers cut out the section of the ship containing the propulsion plants. The spent fuel reactors and reactor compartments are packed and sent to various Department of Energy facilities, which specializes in long-term storage and disposal of nuclear materials in the Pacific Northwest. That's, again, another summary I refer to facilities plural. So under the AUKUS deal that we've got at the moment, Australia is expected and our current leaders apparently are happily going along with this idea that it all has to be replicated in Australia without the slightest bit of justification other than this vague, oh, well, it's, you know, it's all to do with nuclear stewardship. It's just made up words. There's no logic to it that I can see. I'll also say, just as an observation, the rotation of United States Virginia-class subs that occurs from 2027 will involve one of them. So I'm really not sure what, what rotation means in that context. It looks like one of them will be permanently based here, or a submarine will be permanently based here. It just won't be the same submarine. It'll be the submarine being replaced every few months. And to that, it'll be joined periodically, we assumed by assumed by Royal Navy astute class. I see that wharf construction is underway, and I just wonder, is that a US expense or is it an Australian one? At Indo-Pacific last week, I'm sorry, the week before, uh, there was, of course, discussion about what infrastructure is going to be needed to support the Virginias and potentially astutes, and US companies are still working their way through it. But we're, we're talking... You know, a sizable number of, of people, many dozens, maybe, you know, 100, 100 plus. Um, somebody is going to have to pay for all of them. They're going to be housed, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, another quick thing that I picked up was the AUKUS sub being designed in the UK. I, I mentioned in a previous podcast that BAE Systems have been awarded a very large contract. It turns out that that design is more advanced than I had previously believed. I've heard estimates as high as 70%, completely absent of any Australian input, which makes the situation that I was worried about, in a sort of abstract sense, even more concerning. If so much of the submarine has been designed, 
along the requirements of the Royal Australian Navy, sorry, the Royal Navy, it will not have included any of the features that the RAN want, such as a US combat system and presumably US weapons. And redesigning it is going to be a very complex and very expensive exercise. And I'll refer to the another uh, subset of this. The Australian Submarine Agency says, fairly laughably, I might add, the AUKUS partners will also develop a joint combat system as an expansion of the US-Australia combat system. Well, for starters, there is no Australian-US combat system. It's a US combat system. And despite specific promises made when it was selected way back in about 2001 to incorporate some Australian software on the sonar side of things, that has never happened. And checking with a variety of industry sources, there have been no discussions whatsoever of this US-Australian-UK combat system. It's a complete mirage. On the parliamentary scene, or back to the parliamentary scene, there is draft legislation in front of the parliament uh, that's meant to improve the flow of information between Australia and the United States. I'll be dealing with this in a much greater length in a future podcast. I'll, I'll just give you a flavour by saying that the former US Deputy Undersecretary of Defence for Industrial Policy, regarded as one of America's foremost experts on arms, export laws and regulations, says it looks like Australia just gave up its sovereignty and got nothing for it. It appears that Australians adopted the US export control system lock, stock and barrel and everything I wrote previously of ITAR restrictions will now apply to Australian innovation. I think they just put themselves back 50 years. So we'll be exploring that. Now, look, since this has been pretty heavy going, I'll just conclude, if I may, on a self-indulgent digression. As part of uh, my visit to South Korea, I also was taken to the Hyundai Vehicle Design Center. Fascinating. Australia used to have a motor vehicle industry. Remember that? That went about in about 2014. So we now, for the submarine thing, have to recreate an industrial base that to an extent used to exist but was scrapped. Anyway, Hyundai, hugely impressive. It's vertically integrated. They get iron ore from places like Australia. They smelt their own steel. A lot of robotic stuff is going on, robot welding, assembly, and painting. And then there's also this huge press that I, I got the opportunity to, to push a button and make this enormous thing come down on a sheet of flat steel, which in the blink of an eye transformed it into, I think, the boot lid uh, of a car. The person doing the tour in explaining this said that the press descended with the force of 1,100 elephants. And I've been troubled ever since that. Almost every day I've been thinking, 1,100 elephants, but what sort of elephants? African elephants, they're the biggest, I think. Asian elephants, there are even subspecies of Asian elephants. The elephants well fed. I mean, what if the elephants have been without nutrition for a couple of days? Anyway, look, if anyone can answer what type of elephants are in the Hyundai bonnet-making press, please email 
irrelevant questions at whonearlycares.com. Okay, that's it for this week. There's a lot more to go on with next week. Thank you very much for listening. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.